When it modified the restrictions for U.S. residency programs in 2011, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, the ACGME, included not only stricter duty hour limits, but also new requirements for increased supervision of residents. But some experts worry that we risk producing new physicians who aren't prepared to care for patients independently. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Alan Detsky, a professor in the Department of Medicine and the Institute for Health Policy Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Dr. Detsky has co-authored a perspective article about graded autonomy in medical education. Dr. Detsky, in a recent perspective article, Perry Class voiced what seems to be a widespread nostalgia for the type of residency experience that you describe in your article, too, in which, especially at night, residents practiced quite independently. How much of the debate over increased supervision do you think derives from older physicians' nostalgia about their own training, maybe even about resentment that future residents won't have to have gone through the same trial by fire that they did? I don't think that a lot of it has to do with nostalgia for the good or bad old days. Although uh, I reread Dr. Klaus's paper this morning and definitely smiled when I read that because it evoked a lot of painful and pleasant memories from my residency. I think that what Scott Halpern and I are talking about isn't about the nostalgia for the good old days. What we're talking about is something different, which is the sense that what goes on in the middle of the night when residents are alone, forcing them to come to some form of decision-making on complex and sometimes very sick patients is what we consider to be the crucible of what makes them into independent physicians in the future. To be a doctor, you have to learn how to make decisions, and those decisions are to do things or to not do things. Every decision involves some action, and it takes a certain amount of nerve and experience to be able to have the comfort level to make those decisions. And at some point, people have to do them independently. What we're talking about is having a system where residents do it independently, yet have a backup available to them at any time, which is the old system, not the very old system, because in the very old system, residents rarely called in the middle of the night, but the system that existed maybe five to six years ago in the United States and still exists a lot in Canada of having residents managing care on their own at night. And that, we think, is a safe way to do it as long as they have the ability to call when they need help. Forcing residents to call all of the time through their training and then suddenly throwing them into a situation where they have no ability to call anyone when they become independent practitioners, we think may have the potential for harm, but certainly it's open for study. You note in your article that the first round of ACGME restrictions was inspired by the case of Libby Zion, and it was intended to reduce medical errors. From the perspective of patients, reducing fatigue among residents has intuitive sense. So why is it, do you think, that duty hour restrictions seem to have failed to improve outcomes? The unanticipated effect of duty hour restrictions initially was the slippage in sign-over. That clearly was a big problem, which many institutions and residency programs have attempted to address, and certainly we do far better at that in 2014 than we did in 2003 when this first started. So simply getting residents to work shorter shifts was beneficial in one way, but there was a countervailing influence of repeated sign-over. 
that took away from any benefits that there may have been from shorter working hours. And that, I think, is pretty clear. But people that have studied it objectively find that the residents don't actually sleep all that much more. And the overall safety really didn't stem from people being tired. That wasn't the key factor. And even the Bell Commission, which studied this, did not identify resident fatigue as the leading factor in the problem with the Libby Zion case. In fact, I view the Libby Zion case somewhat with fascination. I certainly lived through that era, but wasn't intimately involved with the details. And the the remarkable thing to me is how the death of one person could, under circumstances that I think probably occur frequently, more than frequently, in American hospitals every day, but the impact of that one case was so dramatic in changing the attitudes towards work hours and supervision in the United States. You might be interested to know that in countries other than the United States, the reduced work hour rules were motivated not primarily on the basis of patient safety, but more on the basis of labor relations and union activities. Our residents in Canada are unionized, and their primary motive, I believe, in negotiating better working conditions, and I'm not saying that they weren't in any way justified, I think they were justified, but it really wasn't on the basis of patient safety. It was on the basis of establishing better working conditions for themselves independent of patient safety. Returning to the issue of supervision, can you outline the changes that were included in the 2011 ACGME rules? That's an excellent question because the changes, the way that those rules seem to have been interpreted across the country is quite variable. So initially, we were told that the changes involved much shorter time frames for residents to review the cases with their staff physicians. But in fact, the way that that has been implemented and actually what the rule really seems to be is that programs have to establish protocols for when to call attendings and when they can manage things on their own. And that varies across the country. We informally polled people in San Francisco and in Chicago and in Philadelphia and asked them, how do you interpret this? And they all had a slight variation in the way uh, they interpreted the exact circumstances. But they all had established much more formal guidelines for residents about when to call. In some cases, if a patient's status changed from full resuscitation to one of no resuscitation in the event of cardiac arrest, the attending physicians had to be informed. In other institutions, that didn't seem to be the case. In some cases, if a patient was admitted to a more high-acuity unit, in some cases called a step-down or a step-up unit, they had to be informed. There were variations across institutions, but one thing that was common was everybody had at least thought about it and established a protocol. The net effect of all of those protocols, however, seems to be shortening the time frame between the time a resident is presented with a problem and reviews it with the staff physician, which in the very old days never occurred until the next morning, maybe 10 years ago, occurred sometimes in the middle of the night, but now there's a lot closer communication between staff and residents. And that's not a bad thing, but we wonder whether the net impact of that will be that residents at the end of their training won't be prepared to make decisions independently. And the main point of our article, the main point of the article, is that the ACGME should not mandate one standard as it did with work hour restrictions, but rather should encourage variation in standards for supervision so that at least there could be some comparison and evaluation. So looking for solutions, are there educational strategies that would allow attending physicians 
even if they have a more constant presence in the hospital, to encourage independent decision-making by the residents? That would take training, and it would certainly take a lot of restraint. I do five months of attending on the General Internal Medicine Service every year here at my hospital in Toronto, and I've been doing this for a long time, and even I struggle with the issues of when do I step in and when do I let the resident make decisions on her or his own. And I encourage them to come to a decision, enact the decision, review it with me, and even if they're doing it in not exactly the way that I would do it, I would point that out and then I like to acknowledge that they've made the decision, so let's see how it plays out and let's see what they and I can learn from doing it in that particular way. So I encourage independent decision-making, but I've been doing this for a long time, and I have a lot of comfort with when I have to step in, and there are certain circumstances when I just cannot let them do it by themselves. For example, if I need a consultant to do something very specific in a very short period of time, and I don't think the resident has the uh, therapeutic alliance, so to speak, with the consultant, I'll do that myself. For example, getting a surgeon to take off a diabetic limb in an urgent situation, I would call the surgeon myself. But in most cases, I would allow the resident to make the decision on their own. Younger physicians have a lot, uh, younger attendings, that is, have a lot more trouble telling the difference between those two situations. And so what they tend to do is they either, in most cases, they do everything themselves, which makes the resident feel like an observer, or in some circumstances, they overcompensate and don't make any decisions. It takes experience, and to get this right will take a certain amount of formal training. Vanita Aurora and her group at the University of Chicago, who appeared in one of your previous roundtables, they have been doing work on establishing protocols for training attending physicians in how to think about supervision. In addition to training, you also recommend in your article that the ACGME encourage studies of various models of graded autonomy. So can you describe the types of studies, the outcomes that you have in mind? What we encourage is the ACGME allow and encourage variation. We don't so much uh, expect them to do the knowledge generation themselves, but the main thing is to not mandate a single standard. The kinds of studies that we talk about are long-term patient outcome studies. So, for example, studying the outcomes of patients cared for by physicians trained in a strict, close supervision style with ones who are allowed considerable autonomy and measuring those outcomes in patients in the first few years after uh, they begin independent practice. That's a long-term kind of study, but certainly could be done. And shorter-term studies would be things like my colleague Luke Devine here at the University of Toronto set up, which is forcing residents to come to a specific diagnosis and commit themselves to that diagnosis, recording that diagnosis, and then comparing it to ultimate diagnoses or attending physician diagnoses or diagnoses at discharge so that resident trainees can measure their own error rate or uh, correct diagnosis rate, which would be a happier way of putting that. And then there are other kinds of documentation of the number of times that residents make independent decisions for serious interventions. So, for example, the number of times that a resident makes an independent decision to use pulse steroids in a patient with a significant immune phenomenon, or an emergency room physician makes the decision to stop resuscitative events early on in the course of the resuscitative events because they are deemed to be futile, or for surgeons, the time that they make decisions, for example, to perform an appendectomy on a patient with abdominal pain. 
logging the number of times they get to do that by themselves would be another measure of study. If it turns out that increasing supervision, like duty hour restrictions, at least so far, fails to improve patient safety or patient outcomes, can you imagine other changes to graduate medical education that might actually help? That would go back to what we consider to be the root causes of error. Let's go all the way back to the Libby Zion case. I think there is a researcher in New York at Columbia who has gone back into the case to try and figure out what actually happened. You have to go back and look at what the root causes of error are. And one of the fascinating things about that case to me is I don't think that people actually know how Libby Zion died. There are multiple hypotheses, and it wasn't entirely clear what went on there, at least to my reading. Other people may have a better understanding of that. And so I would apply the same kind of thinking to how errors get made and what role the clinical decision-making of residents has in causing errors or another uh, more optimistic way of looking at it in making the right decisions. And it may well be much more complicated than the simple decisions that they're making independently in the middle of the night. It may have much more to do with other problems in the system in terms of implementing those decisions, for example. So it's well known, for example, that there are medication errors that occur in patient care. And the potential for that is enormous because most of our patients are on double-digit numbers of medications. So no wonder it would be common for there to be error. That may have a lot more to do with what goes on than the individual decision-making of the resident. So if what we're advocating is comparison of supervisory styles to see if it makes a difference. And if it doesn't, then perhaps the strategy increasing supervisory roles of attending physicians is the wrong thing to do because everything uh, has an opportunity cost. If attending physicians have to be in-house at night, then they're not available to do other duties the next day to deliver care to other patients. The Sunset Study, which Scott Halpern was the senior author on, documented that at the University of Pennsylvania that having in-house attendings didn't make a difference for their intensive care units in the middle of the night as opposed to having them just available by phone. And that was what Scott terms actionable knowledge. After the results of that study came out, they stopped having a policy of having in-house attendings, which has a whole resource consequence to it. Thank you, Dr. Desky.